Hello, 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 and welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. We have Dr. Michelle Borba on, who is the author of Unselfie, Why Empathic Kids Succeed in Our All About Me World, and is an internationally renowned educational psychologist and an expert in parenting, resilience, and character development. A sought-after motivational speaker, she has spoken on 19 countries in five continents and served as a consultant to hundreds of schools and corporations, including Sesame Street, Harvard, U.S. Air Force Academy, 18 U.S. Army bases in Europe and the Asian Pacific, HRH, the Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, a TEDx talk, Empathy is a Verb, and is the recipient of Sanford and McDonald Award for Lifetime Achievement in Character Education. She offers realistic research-based advice from a career working with over 1 million parents and educators worldwide. Dr. Borba is a regular NBC contributor who appears regularly on Today and has been featured as a parent expert on Dateline, The View, Dr. Phil, NBC Nightly News, Fox and Friends, Dr. Oz, and The Early Show, among many others. She lives in Palm Springs, California with her husband, is the mother of three grown sons. Super excited to have this wonderful, wonderful guest on all about parenting and how to create thrivers based on her new book, Thrivers. So let's get right into it. Talk about our kids. Welcome to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. I'm super excited to have Dr. Michelle Borba on, who is all about parenting. She's an expert, an expert and I don't get to say that very often when you have someone who's written as many books as she has, who has been doing this for a long time that people like me are like, what? She said, yes, yes, Michelle is here. And if you can introduce yourself to the listeners super quick so they get to know who you are um, and we can go right into the topics. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm an educational psychologist, but I started out as a special education teacher, worked my way into teaching just about every grade level. Absolutely love it. In the meantime, I started writing books and I'm a mom of three boys. Don't know how to get the girl, but three boys. There we go. (laughs) And, you know, you've written a lot of books, at least eight, right? Uh, Actually, 24. (laughs) 24 books. How How has it been writing, spacing them out? saying new things, different things? Like, how's that process? The process is you only write about something you're absolutely passionate about that's just really gnawing at you that you've got to find the answer to. So each book from how to build social skills to kids or the last one was how to build resilience or empathy has always been something that I tried out first with speaking with parents, saw the interests, saw their concerns. And then I've always been really, really lucky to have extraordinary editors in my life who kind of say, go, Michelle, go. And that's how it came out to be. I love that because I, I know for me, I was recently speaking over the weekend and someone asked me, so are you, you know, as a joke, or when are you writing a book? I said, I'd rather speak in front of a million people than write a book. For me, I, I'm just, writing is not my skill set. My wife even has my password to my Instagram account to edit my <laughs> posts. She's like, instead of like critiquing me and making me change it, she just like secretly slides in and fixes it and I don't even notice. Uh, so shout out to my wife, who's my, basically my editor. Um, you know, your book, your work has been so vast all around children and parenting, right? But on different topics, behavior, right? Um, How to deal with the, you know, secrets of the mom. And then the last two, I really want to focus on the one that's coming out very soon. Um, But I want to start off with the unselfie book, Mm -hmm. because there is an adage out there, right? Nice guys finishing last. And Mm -hmm. people are always afraid to be nice 
kind, and compassionate. I know growing up, that's what I was taught to be. And there's this fear like you're going to be a doormat for your life if you're nice. Can you talk about how that's either not true and how to create more understanding how that can actually be a successful thing? Oh, I love that question because it's the number one question I get from parents. First, we have got to stop thinking of empathy as soft and fluffy. It's actually transformational. You want to know why? Okay, you want your kid to be employed? Harvard Business Review now says it's the top employability factor, a kid who can get into the shoes of the customer and go, how would I feel if that happened to me? You want your child to live longer. Well, highest correlation to kids who live the longest we know in the world are kids who have healthy relationships. That starts with empathy 101. How about an engaged kid in a classroom who's a deeper thinker? That's also empathy and empathy driven. How about less stressed? We now know that kids who are more likely to feel with another person and be able to have healthy relationships with others, boy, I think we've learned this one during COVID, are kids who have that empathy drive. So the first thing is we got to stop that because we now know that empathy is actually dipping by 40% in the last 30 years. That should be a wake up. But the good news is it's also something that our kids are hardwired for at birth. So if you want a kind-hearted kid, what we've got to do is be intentional about cultivating it and then looking for the what's the parenting plan to do so. And the good news is it's not a fancy program, another tutor. It's just simple ways to weave it into our daily parenting to raise up kids who are strong in mind as well as heart. Hmm. So why is there still a thing in society to like be a shark, be aggressive, don't let people see your weakness? And I'm not just talking about just for boys, because I know that is a toxic part of masculinity that's unhealthy. But there is this sense of the harder you go, the more you hustle, the harder you push, the more aggressive you are, the more successful you'll be. Why is that still something? Why is that something that people think is a successful part of life. I I think unfortunately, and I bet you will know this, is that a lot of the parenting advice that we have been given is actually not based on science, Uh, aka Tiger Mom, sold a billion copies. And then we look at, is that really true? No, it actually creates a kid who has lower confidence and more likely to be stressed. So the first thing is, parents, if you really want to take a mantra and say, here's what I'm going to use in my own home. Please take a back copy of the book and make sure the person has a credential. Where are they coming from? What's their background? Because you've only got one time to do this thing called parenting right. There's no rewind button on it. And we want the best science-backed data to tell us what's really going to help our kids be successful in home, as well as life, as well as the relationships, as well as jobs. And it's The GPA and the IQ are not going to be the ultimate determiners these days in in an uncertain world. You know, when I was a kid growing up in high school and in in middle school, my parents always pushed the idea that it wasn't just about the grade, but how hard I worked in the class. Yeah. Um, And I have found for myself that hard work is something that I value more than the grade. Um, When I was in grad school, I had a teacher, professor, who... I was stressing out about the class. It was a grad school class. It was on policy, which is not my strong suit, not why I was becoming a therapist. I wanted to be more clinical track, but still important to know how policy works and how it shapes our world. Mm-hmm. I was not doing so great. And my teacher said, five years. I said, what? She goes, five-year plan. She goes, do you think anyone's going to care when you go on a job interview what you got in policy in your second year in grad school? No. Are you passing? 
Yes. Are you getting your degree? Yes. But still, there is this thing of parenting as like the end result in the report card is what matters. I'm, I've dealt with recently a parent who, when the student gets a B, thinks that her child is a disaster. Yeah. Right? And it breaks my heart. So what are those things that, as parents, we can do to reinforce the, the compassionate, more empathetic child? Well, let's get to the effort for just a minute, because I want to say, brilliant teacher. <laughs> I hope you're sending her flowers and thank you. Oh, notes. She's, uh, she's amazing. Yeah. The first thing is we need to reframe this whole concept of success. And if you want a resilient child who's also going to be successful and be able to, to keep on going like you just did, then the first thing you need to realize is that the top correlation to that is agency. The child feels like I got it, not mom or dad is going to do it for me. Back to the effort. That means the child is going to realize how successful I am is clearly based on how hard I work. That makes a major difference on a child's life. So the simple first little thing is doing what Carol Dweck, science-backed research says. Would you please take a moment and always just don't emphasize the what you get. Oh my gosh, you got to be. Instead, help the child realize, well, today you're here, sweetie. Tomorrow you'll go one step more. That's what an Olympic coach does for a kid. He never says, my gosh, you didn't win the gold medal. Instead, it's let's look at your time today and let's go for one step more. If we take success into one little steps along the way and then help the kid realize success is a matter of your effort, not what mommy does, and we keep emphasizing the one step, ooh, you are successful because yesterday you were here, today you're here. See success is a gain, G-A-I-N. That makes a major difference on resilience. It also makes a major difference on the child realizing it's not mom pushing me. I got to start pushing from the inside out. That's confidence building as well. Mm. I love that. And then in a world where sometimes kids might get a different perspective than what's happening in the home. Let's say being bullied or being put down for being kind and nice and compassionate and empathetic and caring, being that nice person who is listening, emotional, yeah. vulnerable, all those things that yeah. we hope for, and they're just getting hurt by it, uh, passed on opportunities, maybe looked aside as the good kid who no one wants to maybe focus on. How do we reinforce that as parents if they're getting another story outside. Well, I love that because one of the big fallacies about empathetic kids is that they, again, are just kind of wimpy. When in reality, your goal is to raise an empathetic kid who's strong. How do you raise a strong kid? You help him learn how to be an upstander. So when you see things that are not right, first, you have integrity. So you know what the heck my mom and dad stand for. What are my value systems? So I know what to say no to. The second thing, what, what I've been doing in schools that I love is teaching kids upstander skills. Empathy is the piece to be able to help the kid go, that's not right. Oh, how glorious for a child to go, that's not right. But what kids say that they hate is having to stand by and not know what to do about it. And it's because we haven't taught them skills. For instance, skill number one is start teaching them assertive comeback lines, C-A-L-M. It's an acronym that's so powerful and so simple. And kids say it's the greatest thing I've ever taught them. Go figure. But C is when you see something that's not right, stay cool and calm. Because if you look upset and you start to cry, you're not going to be seen as strong. That again, doesn't. you can have empathy, but you can still be strong. So take the breath, be cool or walk away. A is assert yourself. 
And that means you got to practice some comeback lines with mom and dad, like, no, or I don't want to, or it's not right. Or if you are quiet and you don't feel like you're verbal, that's okay. Just come up with maybe a hand signal that just means stop. I don't want to. L is look the kid in the eye. If you're going to talk, don't look down. Empathetic kids who are strong look up. They always look at the color of the talker's eyes. It's the most amazing, simple way to help your kid be more confident looking, also more assertive, and he's going to be more likely to be taken seriously. Don't hold your head down. You'll never be taken seriously. Hold your head up. I don't care if you're two or 45. Look at the color of the talker's eyes. If you're shy, that's okay. Look at the bridge right between the kid's nose right there. That's the way. And M is make your voice sound like you mean it. Don't be wimpy. Stop it. Stop it. Which one do you think is going to be taken seriously? C is be cool. A is be assertive. Some come up with some assertive comeback lines that take forever to role play and practice. Practice with the dog and your teddy bear. L is look the person in the eye if you're going to talk. So your whole body, if you hold your head up, my gosh, the most amazing thing is just look in terms of eye contact. Your whole body looks stronger. And M is make your voice sound like you mean it. What you're doing is you're raising an empathetic kid who's also strong and they are far less stressed when they know what to do about it when push comes to shove. Have you seen in the statistics or the research a difference between any gender and how that might show up regarding how empathy is viewed or how it shows up in certain kids and how they're raised? Yeah. What we do know is that empathetic children are almost always raised in a home that has three things going. So it's three E's. Fascinating on social psychology. Number one, they see examples of it. So when I ask them, how'd you become so empathetic? Or we look at altruistic rescuers and they were interviewed, hundreds of them. How'd you become that way? Well, because I always watch my dad or mom. She was the epitome of kindness or honesty. Or I don't care what your value stuffing is, but they're watching you. The second thing is it was expected. In this family, I expect you to do your best in school, but I also expect you to be a good human being. And the third was, was they said they had experiences. Like it wasn't go be strong. Let's go next door and bring the neighbor some cookies because she looks lonely. Or when the child had the moments of working in the shelter or doing some kind of a service project, not because it looked good on a college resume, but because it was real and meaningful to the child, the child develops a caring mindset. He now sees himself as a caring person. He's going to be more resilient, stronger, and more likely to find his passion. And actually, altruistic suffering is the best way to reduce stress. Hmm. It's just so interesting how, you know, uh, I'm sure you have or have heard like Adam Grant's uh, yes. book, right? Where I forgot the title now that I'm saying it out loud, um, where he has the research studies of the medical school, where the, the, the students who are the good ones, who are the kind, caring ones in the first year of medical school don't do so well. Because people take advantage of them. But by the, by the second, third, and fourth year, all of a sudden something switches and they now become a huge part and people now understand their value and they get to the middle to the top of the class. While the other people yep. who have been using and abusing yep. the kids who are kind fall to the bottom. Yep. It's an interesting thing. And it, I think it's really an important point to tell that story and the research, the science to middle school and high school kids, because it's don't give up. Uh, also, we don't have to make them look wimpy. 
I think that's yeah. a big mistake. We are not yeah. practicing that nearly enough. And here's the other thing that's fascinating is after two years, I, almost daily, I work with schools someplace around the country and I'm seeing what's now hit as the next wave. We knew there was going to be a mental health crisis, but we're now looking at regression. Our children are regressing and why shouldn't they be? They haven't been practicing or exercising their skills. Social loneliness, anxiety, separation anxiety are all part of what's happening because they've been kind of cloistered for a while or they've been masked up and they haven't been really sharing and voicing their concerns. Mm -hmm. That means as parents, let's do something. First three skills of social skills that kids learn are ones you need to practice. One is real easy. Model it. When you go to the supermarket, when you go to walks, just start saying hello and wave. Your child needs to say hello and wave. They say, I just dealt with a group of high school kids that say, we're all so lonely. We can't, we're not reading each other like we used to. The second one is eye contact. They don't look down, they look up. And now digital addiction is setting in. They're looking at devices and looking down. So helping your kid practice eye contact, looking up. Third thing is real simple. They encourage each other. Nice job, elbow bump. Well, you can do that when you're playing shoots and ladders with your kids at home. You make the rule that when you play chess, you follow by the rules, but you also encourage dad at least three times when you're playing the rules. So practice the skills. What happens is your child will slowly begin to get into the exercise mode so that he can use them with his friends as well. It's funny that you said that whole thing of the whole good job. My daughter's almost three years old. Aww. And every time she does something well or cleans up or follows the rules or listens yeah i always we always have a high five i'm like good job and she high fives me what's yeah. in turn happened is now when i do something that she likes she goes good job daddy and she gives me like either a pound or a high five or like a headbutt like we do like a little noggin tap whatever it is and i feel like so proud as a parent because she's noticing what is good behavior and quality behavior and then giving someone that pat on the back like a good job no dad I, I, the funny thing is i wasn't even doing it as like a conscious thing it's how i was taught someone does something well or yeah. good or quality you tell them thank you great job but it's just cute how like she was hanging out with my grandmother this weekend and my grandmother was playing with her and followed followed what what my demanding daughter, three-year-old daughter's asking of her, said, good job, Omi. And like gave her a big high five. This 95-year-old and this almost three-year-old are, uh, are uh, just very, very cute. I love that. So it's just such, a, such an important thing for people to hear. I think you said it about six times already. Kindness and empathy and compassion is not weakness. And yes. we have to get away from that as parents because when parents are the ones giving the example that they're the ones who are like, I can't be weak. So I'm going to, in my interactions outside, my interactions in the community, in the school, with other parents, in synagogue, in church, in my, whatever you go to pray, wherever yes. you go to get involved in, I'm going to be this big personality who's going to be disgusting or destructive or, or powerful. That's the only way I get things done versus how kindness creates and how compassion, those things, kids notice everything. They see everything. Oh, and I think there's a takeaway here that is so crucial because sometimes we love our kids dearly, don't we all? 
And we get so inundated with thinking we have to do so, 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 so much. Sometimes the most important thing to do is just hear what really works. And the single most important thing that you've just said that I'm just going to reinforce on the science is take intentionally one skill that you think your child needs right now. Then show your child the skill. Don't tell them the skill. Notice what you were doing was modeling it yourself with your daughter. She then picks it up. Kids always learn if you show it or point it out, then tell. And then you keep reinforcing it over and over and over again until your child internalizes it or transfers it or does it without you. And that's exactly how you teach skills. So maybe the takeaway here is from everything you heard from just the two of us talking or it could be anything else. What's the one thing that you want to teach your child? Example, my girlfriend, Judy Baggett, has two extremely successful daughters in their 30s, and I have watched her raise her daughters. But she mandated at age three that she was going to also help her kids become successful, but also kind. And she mandated one rule in the house. It was called the two kind rule. And it sort of sums up what we were just talking about. Every day you leave this house, You were to say or do at least two kind things to someone. And then at dinner at night, we're going to talk about what were the two kind things and what do people do? Well, what happened was her kids got into the habit of it. They have a big old chart on the refrigerator of besides just smiling and and opening the door, what are other things you could do that are kind? But her kids became more and more assertive as well. That kindness can spin over. Kindness is the beginning thing when you acknowledge the other person exists. It's a gateway to empathy. It doesn't mean you're empathetic, but empathetic means as a long time that there's habits you can teach. Now you can teach them to be assertive and the upstander and to be able to understand who you are and what you stand for or to listen. It doesn't mean when you listen that you have to agree with the person. Mm -hmm. You never have to agree, but try to understand where the person's coming from. That's a skill we all need right now. Uh, it's ever. unfortunate. <laughs> um, uh, I'm not going to get into that. Um, not to, to spend so much time on on, uh, on selfie and get into Thrivers, but I know on the cover of the book, if you don't get to the rest of the book, but you see there's nine habits. Do you know some of them offhand that you think are the more <laughs> integral ones? I don't want to put you on the spot. No. What I discovered is that when I knew empathy was critical and I knew empathy was in a free fall, says a phenomenal work that's looked at thousands and thousands of kids. I then looked at, so if you can teach it, what does it look like? Emotional literacy is number one. You can't be empathetic unless you can turn and go, how does he feel? Read mommy's face, hear her voice tone. So the first one on this one is just talk feelings far more naturally to your kids, particularly you ask this question to your son's than your daughters. We do a far better job of talking emotions at age two to our two-year-old daughters than we do to our two-year-old son, says Yale. So talk to feelings and emotions. Um, and you can FaceTime it. How do you think grandma's feeling right now? The second one is moral identity, which is another gateway. You're going to step in and do good if you know that's right or that's wrong. So do you have a strong moral compass in your family? What do you stand for? Self-regulation is absolutely critical as well. Empathetic kids can get stressed. How do I put the brakes on my stress so I can think straight and self-regulate? That's critical. There's so many ways to do that. Kindness, being able to help your child learn what's kind or what's not, to be able to practice kindness. Collaboration. We get so much of the competitive me against you thing. Mm -hmm. We got to help our kids learn we. And if we don't learn we, which is, by the way, one of the 
key Fortune 21 skills for the world right now. Employers are looking for that. Uh, altruistic uh, just change making, being able to stand up, being an upstander is another one until finally you become that altruistic thinking and do more service learning. There's a lot of different habits. They sound highfalutin, but what I try to do in Unselfie is tell you why it matters, why the research says it does matter. And then dozens of simple things you can choose. Do not do them all or your kid will never let you read another book. But choose one or two that you want to keep doing as a family until it kicks in. I love that. And then to jump into then your your book coming out, Thrivers, there are very similar. I was looking through it because I, I didn't oh. get it yet because it's on pre-order. But there are very similar connections of yes. the unselfie empathy as well as some of the habits yes. or tell signs of a thriver. Why do you think that is? Well, it was absolutely a fluke in my part as the reader and the writer, because when I was devouring all the research, my whole career, I've been trying to figure out what creates resilient kids. How do you thrive despite adversity? So I started looking at all the research after I'd written on selfie, because I continued to see one in five American kids suffering from some kind of a mental health disorder. I looked at the numbers of children who will face adversity, and I realized we're not teaching them to be a thriver. Uh, and I began to see that some of the things in empathy are also highly correlated to resilience, which is yay, yay, yay. When I finally came up with uh, seven traits that are most highly correlated to resilient children, by the way, Thrivers was just released March 2nd in paperback. So yay. Mm. But yay, yay. The, the first one we do know is confidence. We've got to help our children learn who they are, not what we want them to become. Once we know what their nuggets are, what their assets are, what their strengths are, we're more likely to parent that way. The most tragic stat I discovered was that 77% of the time we try to fix our kids, we focus on their weakness and not on their strength. You should, you should have asked me that. I would have told you from my practice how many parents yeah, I call I call me and say, my kid is in trouble, fix them, you know, solve this. And a lot of times... Now, sorry to cut you off, but a lot of times no. the work is actually convincing the parents yes. that their kid is actually amazing and wonderful and just struggling in a way because you're not seeing how to just tweak or adjust your perspective. Yes. So like, I have a kid that is really wonderful. I mean, unbelievable kid involved in this arts and that thing. And the mom is just consumed by her own anxieties that she thinks her kid, there's a problem with her kid. So she's trying to fix and solve and point and prod and and it calls me and I'm like, your kid's fine. No, they're not. They're not fine. What are you saying, Ellie? You don't know what you're talking about. Hang up the phone. And yeah. it, it breaks my heart because if we start looking at our kids as a, instead of looking at all the problems and look at some of the successes, we'll see them in such a different light. But sorry to cut you off. Go for it. No, no, no. I am so in agreeing with you because that confidence is the foundation to resilience. For instance, a couple of simple things that you can do. Emmy Werner, phenomenal research on resilience, studying kids for 40 years who have overcome adversity, homelessness, sexual abuse, but some of them bounce back. One of the things they have in common is hobbies, healthy hobbies that they go to to decompress. So simple little things can make a difference. I, I put a survey in Thrivers that was 150 assets of kids mm. and parents say it's the best thing a part of the book because they overlooked the majority of them. I didn't see that as an asset, character strengths, learning styles. So the second one is empathy. 
It's a superpower. We forget that social confidence is one of the most highly correlated traits of resilience. Third is also, also in empathy, but it's self-control. You've got to be able to put the brakes on impulses. Integrity, also in empathy. But you have to know what you stand for because sometimes resilient adversities are mm, like little challenges along the way or big problems. And sometimes they're value structures. Should I or shouldn't I? Peer pressure. Mm -hmm. Then the other ones that come up along the way, oh gosh, all different kinds, but we do know uh, that the teamwork and collaboration are critical. We do know also that uh, when we look at resilience, gosh, the majority of them, hope and optimism, I think are critical. Curiosity, problem solving, to be able to think outside the box. And what we started out in our first beginning of the talk today, perseverance, learning that effort matters. Those are the most highly correlated traits of resilience and they're all teachable. Thrivers are made, not born. I was going to just ask that. Are people born more in their brain structuring and the way that their values or characteristic traits are showing? They're not born as much as they are created? No. This is nature nurture. This is nurture. This is nurture. We do know that self-control, some kids have a little bit more of a pulse on that in terms of DNA. But the rest of those, you're not born with character. You're not born with value structures. You're not born with empathy. All of those are cultivated. And resilience is not a program. It's experiences that are intentionally Mm -hmm. created for the kid. I think the worst thing we do is helicopter and coddle our kids. We solve the problems for them. It robs resilience because mom's going to do it. I can't. Yeah, I remember when I was chatting with Julie Lithgott-Hames, yes. we're talking about parenting. I know they're in this secret WhatsApp group, all of you are, and it's like a secret yeah. WhatsApp group of authors. <laughs> I was told that there's like some some like awesome cabal of like secret authors out there. Um, and uh, she was talking about, she gave me the metaphor, if you help your kids walking, you take away the sharp objects so they don't get impaled. Yes. But like if you're holding under their armpits the entire time they're walking away, they're not going to learn that they can do it themselves. Exactly. But, you know, I, I grew up, I have ADHD, right? So my impulse control is a little different. Um, you know, I've learned to work through that, whether medication, sure. mental health, therapy, all those things. Are there ways that you, if you don't have all seven to a like a great degree and you're okay or somewhat good, does it mean that now you're not a thrive? Like, is there a threshold that is that you've seen from the research and studies that there's like a marker for success versus like, oh, you just missed it? I love that question because I was writing thinking you needed them all. And then I realized my aha moment was, no, you don't. It's a rare adult that has seven. It's a rare adult that has six. So what I discovered is that there are seven that are highly correlated to resilience and teachable. But start with the one that you think your child already has as a strength, Mm -hmm. not the weakness. Start with the strength and then add the next and the next. What I learned is that there's a multiplier effect. You put any two together, they amplify the two and they become more like superpowers. You put three together, it even gets better and better and better. So this is an also not an overnight process. Oh my gosh, he doesn't have it. He's going to graduate tomorrow. You start when they're two and you keep on going for the rest of the child's life. And that's our old goal. So you've mentioned that twice, that two years old is a starting point. Why is that the point? Is that just because of where the kid's consciousness, awareness, abilities, brain brain structure? It's Well, first of all, you start it at birth when you hold the baby and you love them and you rock them. And attachment 101 is the critical piece. 
in terms of teaching skills to, I'm saying only for one and a half for some kids, it could be four or seven for another. It's mm. because they have cognitive abilities and language and you're talking it through, or they can mimic a lot better. Four is when they get theory of mind, they begin to realize the other kid has a different brain than me. So Mm -hmm. they're starting to develop a little bit more empathy. Each one is scaffolded. Each one is in a spectrum of from, you just always as a parent, right? You figure out where your child is right now, not the kid next door, your child. And then you slowly, 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 slowly add on. Uh, And a few more questions. Is there a point as a parent where you don't have to continue working on this? Like when you're in your, when your kids are in their twenties and thirties and forties, where you just back off and let them like, okay, we're not working on your self-confidence anymore. Like, is there a cutoff point where you as a parent can't teach them that stuff or model it and they have to then learn on their own? No, it's never too late. But you have to get a whole lot craftier when they get older, don't you? (laughs) And you can do it by, um, I've had some parents who tell me, uh, college-bound kids, what they do, it is like for Thanksgiving or Christmas, what they do, um, any kind of a holiday, they work in service projects. Mm -hmm. Or they work it in so it's a family and it's F-U-N, which is critical. Also, as they get older, you involve their friends, bring them into the spectrum. Find as a parent, another like-minded parent as you, oh, there's a gold mine because now the two of you can work together or have the older kid tutor a younger kid. I've seen that in high school kids that are struggling with some of the skills and you can't teach it at that age to that child. But if you can say, for instance, I've got a high school kids who are teaching calm to first graders Hmm. and guess who's, who's getting better at it. That's the whole big brother thing. That's the whole structure of the big brother. And it's wonderful. Exactly. Uh, Last question I have is, you know, you talk about the idea of of a thriver and and resilience and going through life's experiences. Not everyone's going to have the same resilient experience, right? Some people are going to be born in environments that are extremely toxic, poisonous, hurtful, harmful, abuse, you know, lack of money, all those different things. Is that a marker? Because, you know, sometimes when you get to that, that uh, college essay and you're like, nothing's really happened in my life. What do I write? Does that mean that you can't be a thriver if you don't have those experiences that push you in a way to test it? No. And the reason I am absolutely emphatic about it is all the research would counter you. From Ann Maston to Norm Gramese to Michael Rudder to Annie Emmy Werner, they all asked that same question. What about kids who are suffering the most abusive situations? Is there any hope? And what they discovered is if the child had, here's two things that have in common. Not necessarily that parent, but somebody who's another protective champion in their life, like your teacher or the coach or grandmother or the neighbor next door, any other protective champion who says, don't worry, sweetie, I'm here for you, can make a difference. The second thing they had in common is someplace along the way, they'd always learn protective buffers. You see, all those seven strengths are big old character terms, but each one of those strengths is made up of skills. Like curiosity is made up of problem solving. You learn problem solving. That's what's going to help you bounce back. So what they'd learned along the way are some protective buffers that help them. Mm -hmm. Each chapter in Thrivers also has a story about a kid who faced enormous difficulties. Uh, When your ADHD story, um, Michael Phelps, 
enormous ADHD as a kid, diagnosed as a riddle and didn't work for him. But he said, the best thing in my life was my mom, who always had a calm down. She'd make her hand go into a shape of a C and she'd sit on the stands. And that was my signal to take the breath. It meant calm. But she discovered the swimming pool. I jumped in the pool and that's where I learned to be my best. That's what boosted my confidence. We've got to look out for where's the point, the helper, not who we want our kids to be, but who our child is. What's going to be the avenue that helps that child be able to shine? The swimming pool, the art, maybe it's guitar. Who knows what it is? But Mm -hmm. boy, there's nothing better for a parent than keep watching your child to figure out that nugget and then figure out how to help that child expand that nugget so they realize their strength. I love that. You know, it just shows you that the research is, you you don't have to have experiences that are traumatic to be resilient. You Mm -hmm. have to have, it's about the people in your life that create that resilience and that ability to have those buffers because you can have a quote unquote good life that doesn't have the things that you might see on TV or the stories that you might hear that are very sad and traumatic to be a resilient person. Um, You don't have to push yourself and cause your kids to have these ridiculous experiences, right? Just to be so they can learn lessons um, is important. Or be like the neighbor kid next door. You know, I think our comparison models have got to stop. And I think we need to tune in. Let me give you a story about a dad. It was like eye opener because the start of all of this is not tuning into the kid. The start of all of this is tuning into ourselves and going, am I the one that's comparing my child or is this... Am I pushing my kid to be what I want him to be, not who he is? A dad who said his kid, he had two kids, middle school kid, and all the kid would talk about was wolves. He said, I want my kid to be a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. I think he should be a lawyer. And I'm pushing him to be a lawyer. And all he talks about is wolves. So one day I said, okay, I'm taking him to a park ranger and I'm just having a little field trip with my kid. Oh my gosh, I can't believe how grateful I am that I did that. I spent the day listening to my kid, having the most high-level conversation with the park ranger, correcting him politely about stats about wolves. And that was my moment that said, biology is where he's aimed for. Forget Forget the thing on law. I have to start helping my kid become who he is. I love that. I could talk to you for hours about this. I have to, you know, I have to run. But Michelle, really, thank you so much for all the work all the research uh, that you've done for us as, as, as readers uh, so we don't have to do it ourselves and can gain all this amazing information. I really appreciate you coming on the show as someone who is a highly acclaimed expert in this field. Oh. It means a lot to me to uh, have you a part of the Dude Therapist family. So again, uh, Michelle, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. You're doing a service for parents. It's unreal. Thank you. Thank you so much to listening to this week's episode of The Dude Therapist. And it only is happening because of you, the listeners, tuning in every week, even twice a week, to this show all about mental health, relationships, and wellness topics. And really, let's be honest, everything in between. And I'm so excited to show up every time and having great guests. So thank you. And if you have any questions, concerns, ideas, collaborations, email me at thedudetherapist at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at thedudetherapist. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your ideas. I can't wait to hear from you. And if you can go along 
subscribe, rate, review on all the streaming sites that you're listening on. I truly appreciate it because that's what makes this thing happen. So thanks for tuning in this week and see you next time on the Dude Therapist podcast. So we've got more guests and more great content coming your way.